after the breach, there's this call with the, you know, the, the top X number of, of customers. And it's, it's a heated call. People are nervous. People are scared. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of yelling and, and a lot of questions. I, I remember you telling the story distinctly. There was an executive for a big, big company, the type of executive when, when they speak, everybody listens, right? And, and this person got on, on the call and said, Hey, we know what you're going through. We went through something similar. If there's anything you need, let me know. And that was it. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and I'm back again with my longtime friend and former colleague, Chris Frederick, Deputy CISO at Baxter International. In part one, we introduced Chris's background, and now we move on to a pivotal moment in both of our careers, a major breach. He describes the realizations he faced when transitioning from team lead to manager and shares how he stepped up in a time of crisis. Going through a breach while stressful is an invaluable learning opportunity. So who do managers really work for? What's the mark of a great leader? And why are trusting relationships so vital during a breach? So this is kind of part two, or the second phase of this conversation with Chris. Part one covered kind of how we got to know each other in the beginning of his career. Uh, and we just covered a little bit about the departure from one job and kind of the leadership lessons from that and then beginning a new one. So Chris, where did we, uh, where did we end up? So we left a company and then I don't think we even took very much time off. And then we started at a new, much larger uh, insurance company together. What did you do there? What was your first role there? Yeah, much, much larger, I, I would say. And then, and that, that was a big shock going from still a, a big company, but, but definitely going to a, a mega corp, right? It was, was definitely uh, an eye opening experience. But, but yeah, I started off, um, at, at this, this new, new adventure working on basically at the early days of, of what was, what would have been insider threat type of capabilities and building out. Uh, that that type of program, I, I kind of actually I kind of forgot that Chris. Okay, so you're doing early days of insider threat. Uh, how long did you do that, and what what's like a common output of what, what were you working on? Because I know you went there, and then you you were on a handful of teams, one right. of which where we linked back up. But like, what was your daily work like that performing? Because it's a little bit a little bit of a different job, like a non standard role, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it definitely wasn't as operations heavy as what we had previously. For me, it was was really more about kind of building out a program and doing some some research on insider threat and and, and doing probably more advanced uh, capabilities than we should have been working on at the time. Like for instance, honeypots and things like that. Sitting, doing things there, but really kind of again, kind of just building out uh, what what would be an insider threat program, and then. Did that for gosh, I think it was it might have been a year or two before as as things happen in business or big big companies where priorities changes and, and programs get dropped and split up and moved around and left that to kind of go back to more similar type of work to what we did um in the in the previous role focusing on on vulnerability management and ultimately network security type of stuff. What was that? I mean, what did you learn? You're changing leaders. You are changing teams. What did you learn about that? 
you went from non-operational to operational. You're still relatively not new in your career, but kind of, right? You're at a bigger company. When you moved into VM, what's one thing you learned doing vulnerability management that you still remember today that influences how you manage that today or would recommend managing it today? Yeah, I think th- at that point, one of the big things that that, that stands out to me, uh, memories, is really that was kind of the start of of, of, of me kind of learning how to, how to tell a story and the importance of telling a, a good story. I know you talked about this on, on the podcast in the past, but you have these these vulnerability management reports and they're huge and there's there's all these kinds of shock and awe numbers, but really kind of distilling that down and being able to tell a cohesive story, a, a clear story and have have clear metrics and, and whatnot to kind of show that. That was a that was a big, big thing that, that jumps out to me from from my time at uh, doing VM there. Well, so I think to jump into that a little more, I mean, you're in a situation where endless numbers of this stuff and you have so many sev fives and sev fours and and a lot of it at some point just ends up being BS. And not that it's not relevant, not that it's not important, but at the point that you have something at some never ending PowerPoint that's full of all these numbers, it's just you're not using it to sort of get any better. You don't you can't look at it and say, well, am I any more secure or less secure? What's being exploited or not exploited? Or how do I make a decision based on this? Or and if I remember correctly, that team you were dependent solely on other groups to patch their stuff. So like, this is only half of this equation. Yeah. Well, that, that that's another kind of early lesson for me in terms of, well, continuing to build upon on the lessons of, of how important partnerships are, right? And that's how, as, as most people listening to this know, like that's how you get things done in big companies is, is through power, through, through partnerships and whatnot. So, so building those partnerships with those teams, uh, again, the, the high candor, uh, type of relationships is, is super important to, to getting anything done. So maybe a couple other things just for somebody who's listening, who is maybe they're the manager or director over vulnerability management, or maybe AppSec, or maybe a combination. Maybe they're wanting to get into leadership. Maybe they're the team lead and trying to be the manager, and they're struggling with this as well. You mentioned storytelling, but what are a couple of things that somebody could do maybe a little bit tactically, or maybe not, maybe strategically, to help them. You've done this role tactically, and now you're responsible for other people that sort of have done it or do it. Any other things that a pet peeve related to vulnerability management or uh, a report that you like or an outcome that you expect? Any advice at all? Yeah, I always, and again, going back to my, my days as a technician, like I always, uh, I always hated just bombing reports over to people like, hey, here's a bunch of stuff, go fix it, right? So like, like setting aside, and this helps to kind of build, helps to build the trust and helps to kind of build that relationship. So when you sit down and say, hey, I've got this report, bunch of stuff on it, Let, let's go through it together and, 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 and prioritize, hey, when can certain things get fixed and when can they not? When can they, when, how, how do we manage this together versus me just bombing a report over to somebody? I think that was, um, that's always important. I think the other thing that I learned is in many cases, uh, it's these types of reports are kind of the long tail of holding contractors and vendors even responsible, meaning you have a third party in managing your data center and server management and these sorts of things. And so many of these vulnerabilities, a certain percent come from servers that should be retired anyway. They shouldn't even be powered on, uh, but they're waiting on some administrative steps. So, you know, 10% of the crap that you have on your network is a result of 
just someone not closing a ticket or not finishing that last step. So you have this sort of, you know, these zombie servers out there. I saw it, you saw it on the incident response side. You remember how many times we'd respond to incidents or discover something, and, and we would cross paths with a server that shouldn't even have been online. And so that's another thing to say, like, hey, like, fix this. Like, this is, this is one way. Rather than saying I've got a 1,000 of these missing patches, well, actually, I've got 900 because 10% of this stuff needs, is on servers or VMs that need to be gone anyway. So that's the other, I think that's the other analytic thinking that I look for to say it's not just grind out a bunch of patches. It's also enlighten me on these things around the edges that are sort of, um, you're dealing with symptoms. Show me some of the causes of these big numbers. Well, and also the, the tools themselves can be, can be flawed, right? Like, like there'd be a false positive and it really takes kind of sitting down and saying, okay, versus just reading, hey, the report, the scanner found this. Like, well, what, what did it find? Like, like, what is the specific executable? What is the version? What is the registry path like? And really sitting down with, with the experts, the sysadmins, network admins who know this stuff and kind of working with them to, to figure the, some of that stuff out. Again, goes back to building those, those trusting relationships and uh, ultimately getting things done. So you leave that job and you start, what's the next one you do? So you left vulnerability management. What's up next? Up next for me was was kind of again getting back into uh to network security and and then again kind of merging back with with kind of with with you and and kind of working on network security network IDS IPS and then ultimately that dovetailing into to building out a SOC which is a big part of our time there. Yeah, so I can remember early days of you know, one of the ways you get ahead in your career, when I moved into leadership, I had someone that wanted me to go into leadership. And I'm like, that's a terrible and dumb idea. But the reality was, is uh, they needed me to take something that was sort of on fire and put that fire out and get it stable. And, and I very much needed that same thing. And so I remember handing you all kinds of just crap because uh, I needed it done. And you had you know, the result of bad integrations and legacy apps and host IPS and a bunch of other things that just was a lot of trash, uh, but it needed done. But that would have been your first set of, I don't remember when you went into, did you come over? My memory is, I'm getting too old for this. Did you come over as a manager? No, I did not. I, I came over as an individual contributor and was, was team lead for a while and then then later the the manager title came. Yeah, yeah. So I mean talk to me about that. I had a whole reason I love this this transition. So we had both been team leads many times before on different teams. I had been on on, on a network security, technical security team, I'd been that on an architecture team and then later on moved into like official title. And I remember I had a long list of things I was afraid of. I had a, I made a list of all the things I thought I was going to I think I yeah, I was going to fuck up and I made this list and none of those things happened. It was another list of things that surprised me that I didn't think about that I that I messed up. So when you became a manager, what were you worried about? Yeah, so that's that transition for me going from individual contributor team lead to to, to manager was was one of my one of my more profound moments throughout my career. I I, I distinctly remember you you had a you had a rule at the time like if if you move into a leadership role you you give up console rights right because that's that's not your role anymore that's not what you're there for 
And I distinctly remember sitting in the in, in my cube, my cubicle. I had just submitted a ticket to have my ax, my my admin access removed. I distinctly remember looking down at my keyboard, thinking, "Okay, what do I do now? How do I add value to this team? Because I'm I, I I'm not a technician anymore. I can't go into the console. I can't help with updates. So how do I add value to this team? And at that point, it kind of clicked for me. It's like, oh, my my role now is is for them. I work for them more than they work for me. My role now is to make sure they have what they need to be successful and that they, they get raises and promotions and kudos and all those things. And, and my, my role is, is, is now to help them. That was a profound moment for me. Yeah. And sadly, a lot of people don't still get it, that they don't understand that. And that's one of the things that cripples this industry greatly. And I've met otherwise very smart people that don't understand this concept, that think that that rule that I had, there's some exceptions to this rule, I'll say, but they think I'm crazy. And I will say that in some cases, if it's a small team, you may not have that luxury. If it's early days, you may not have that luxury, right? If you're just building something out or you may have to check it yourself or you may have to, you know, help clean things up or whatever. But my operating model was exactly that. So the question I have for you, I've moved on and, and done different things. You have certainly moved on and done uh, several different things as a deputy CISO, as an acting CISO, as a, a deputy again. Has this rule stuck with you? For the most part, yes. You know, as, as, as you said, things happen and, and, and capabilities may differ to where, you, where team size may be different and then you may need to to have some access there. But I typically maintain that those cases where I do need access to things, I, I limit myself to read only because again, it's, it's about building trust with the teams and they don't need some dumb manager in the console making changes and, and, and messing things up. I think if, if, if you are a manager and you insist upon that, you're not sending the right message to the team. You're sending a message to them that you don't trust them. And, and so much of what, what we do has to be built upon trust. So I think um, I try to stay out of the consoles for that very reason. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would agree. So, Chris, you were a part of several interesting things that went on. We were working together. There was sort of this baby version of the team, and we identified some problems involving a nation state, uh, kind of shared that with the organization. There was a response, but it probably wasn't as aggressive as I would have liked or you would have liked. This happens, and then ultimately, about six months later-ish, there's a discovery of a bigger problem in the form of what was ultimately a breach. When that happens, you know, all hell kind of breaks loose, and there's all these interesting, really leadership observations, but these emotional things happen as well. And that was really the start of this much bigger team that, that was created, big picture. But from the time of kind of the initial discovery of the nation state behavior to the breach, that window of time specifically. What do you remember from that window of time? What lessons did you learn? What observations did you make? Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned, during that time, we were we were self-identifying some of this this activity. And if I if I remember right, even we thought it was was kind of crazy. Like 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 is this really the nation state? Are they really interested in us? And like this can't be right. And you know, almost kind of got looked upon as oh, those security guys with their tinfoil hats, right? But then, when when the event happened, uh, we were able to kind of go back and 
and, and pull all of our recommendations, which, which lined up with a, almost exactly with a third party, if I remember right. So having doing that kind of upfront work kind of was, was, was good to be able to kind of pull that out of our back pocket and say, Hey, we, we've been telling you about this for, for a while. But I think one of the, the other things I, I, I talked previously about relationships and, and, and partnerships and, and doing all of that before a crisis. I know you, you've talked about that before, but when, when that event happened, because I, from my days in vulnerability management, and as I said before, sitting down with, with these technicians and, and building those relationships with people of, Hey, this is what the tools are saying, right? And, and whatnot, and, and building those relationships. When the breach happened and suddenly everything, as you said, all hell breaks loose and now everything is covered under attorney client privilege and I have to go to the, ask these teams for help. And I, I distinctly remember going to several of them saying, Hey, something's happened. I, I can't go into detail, but I need, I need help. And this is what I need. And in all cases, every single one, because I had done that work up front and built up those relationships, every one of them said, yes, Chris, what do you need? No questions asked. So again, highlighting the importance of building up those relationships before a crisis, before there's a fire. Anything else here? I mean, one of the other things that, that I think I would say, your set of experiences around this, I think, are fairly unique. There's not a lot of people that I think have this, even though there's there's been a fair number of breaches uh, that have occurred even since then. However, there's still a pretty small amount of folks that have kind of the, the experience hands-on. One of the things that I've reflected on is the stuff I was doing at the time, I got pulled up. People get pulled up. You get pulled up into higher level conversations. So you're whatever level, but you're working one or two or three levels above and we're having to recruit, quote unquote, two, three, four, five, six levels down to cover all the needs of the breach. So you had to do a lot of stuff because I was off doing other things, legal stuff, right? Working with, with groups like Mandian or Microsoft or whoever, you had to, to get pulled up and to do a lot more new and stressful things. Do you remember any of that? Do you have, do you have any <laughs> reminder or is it all just sort of a blur, right? I mean, you were having to operate at a much higher level than you're used to. Yeah. I, I know I had during that time, I had at least one 27 hour day, probably multiples of those. So it's, it's a little, little, little bit foggy, but I'll say, I didn't, I, like like I mentioned before, earlier on in my career where I had that that moment of, oh my God, like I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like I never really had that at, at this point, which is, is big enough. You, you would have thought that you know, somebody going through it for the first time would have thought that, but I didn't have that this time. And I, I don't know if that's a product of of the uh, the leadership chain we had kind of at, at the time and, and just kind of the confidence there, but I distinctly not not thinking that like I had thought in, in prior in my career. Well, one thing, I mean, having a, having a, and I told you so email changes the discussion greatly when they come back around and say, well, what happened? And, you know, we had created a recommendation guide that then an expensive third party said, this is what exactly what you should have done. That gives you, that gives you some pretty strong wings. Right. But I can remember getting pulled into a lot of things that, I honestly wasn't ready for. I think I did a pretty decent job, but I got a hell of a lot of great experience from it. I can remember talking to you and some of the other guys and saying like, look, I don't have a lot of time to explain. I just need this to get, I need an agent installed in every system. I need these network sensors installed. Like, don't come back until it's done. Like, call me if there's an issue, but don't come back until it's done. And it all got done. 
and uh, and that you know you you and others were in the middle of that. Anything else? So that's that's sort of the beginning of the breach. Then there's this big long tail of legal activity and audits and customer needs. Um, one of the things I think that I know you were in, well, I know for a fact you were involved in, but when you have a problem, client management is much more difficult. And one of the things I know that you got to do later on is kind of do these tours of, so a customer is doing an evaluation, they send their risk team out, and we sort of had this program uh, to convince them that we you know, had a new security program and we're passionate about it. And tell us about what, what was that? I don't know that I've ever really talked about that. And then you were ultimately managing that, you know, and sort of hosting these big logos that would come in. Uh, what was the process? Why did we do it? And then what do you remember from, from all of that? Yeah. yeah. Although before I go into that, I do, I do have a story related to the breach. I wasn't on this call, but 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 you talked about kind of customer management and whatnot, and I wasn't on this call, but I heard about it from you. I, it's one of the ones that that kind of sticks out in my mind. And I try to I try to think of that, play, pay that forward even today. Where after the breach, there's this call with the you know the the top X number of, of customers, and it's it's a heated call. People are nervous, people are scared, so there's a lot of there's a lot of yelling and, and a lot of questions. I I remember you telling the story distinctly. There was an executive for a big, big company, the type of executive when when they speak, everybody listens, right? And and this person got on on the call and said, Hey, we know what you're going through. We went through something similar. If there's anything you need, let me know. And that was it. He stopped talking at that point. So I, I always try to, to 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 pay that forward if whenever you see something in the news of, hey, you know, they're having a bad day. I've been through that bad day. I know what that's like. So rather than, than point and laugh and say they're they got pwned and they're they're dumb and all that. Like having more empathy there is is is, is a, another lesson that, that that sticks out for me there. But excellent point, excellent point. I had forgotten about that. I remember that. I remember that now. I had forgotten about that. That's a what was a yes. That's fantastic. And, and Steve, like again, like that that sticks with that story. Like that sticks with me today. Like every time I see something in the news, that that's one of my beefs with our industry. I think we're a bit too quick to point the finger and laugh at people, but trying to have that empathy and always tell tell teams that that i work for teams i'm on like hey they're they're having a bad day like we know what that bad day is like let's let's be there to support them as 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 they need because we all have to do this together so but but going back to to the kind of the other customer relations type type piece of of what we did when when we built out the sock as, as as you will know we built it out with the idea that hey we want this to be kind of a showpiece for for sales and for 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 the, the business to kind of use this 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 amazing capability that we've built as a way to continue to kind of drive the business. So part of that would include you know giving sock tours and presentations to per, potential customers and whatnot. So did a fair amount of that, and you started off with with you leading a lot of those, and then over time you you kind of came in those less and less, and it was me and, and a few others that were kind of leading those those presentations, and ultimately it kind of. Uh, Helping to drive the business, which is, is especially at, at, at our levels at the time, not something uh, you get to do often as a security professional. No, I mean to talk about how I mean these are these contracts are massive, and so to have a a function that does this, to have a relationship with sales, and to help move the needle 
or to not be a blocker is huge. I'm going to guess you remember these. Do you remember the, the three presentations that we had, the three the titles of the three decks? Vaguely. I, I, can, I, can, I can see the slides in my mind. I don't remember the, the titles. Oh, we worked. We worked our asses off on those, and I was so proud of those that we could use them. It's, it's, who, it's who we are, what we do, and the third one, which we use the least typically, but every, it came in handy, was where we're going, right? So who we are was sort of details about our staff and the diversity and all the different languages we spoke and the degrees we had and the years in security and kind of how we laid things out and, and org chart. And, and what we do got into, you know, how do we do what we do? And what are the things we find? And what are our, what are our thoughts around detection and disruption and response? You know, and sort of the tenants there. And then where we're going is really a roadmap of what are the capabilities we want to mature. Remember, we were big on outside maturity assessments and things, which I'm still a big fan of. But yeah, that's, you had to deliver those. Uh, and you had to have a lot of confidence to do that. To, you know, and you were given them, right? Because after a while, that's the other thing anyone who's worked with me knows. I give away all that stuff. I don't want to continue to do this. So I'm here, Chris. There's a leadership opportunity. Manage these customers. So as a, as a manager, senior manager, director, you were managing the success of these sometimes approaching billion-dollar contracts. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you remember from that? Yeah, so I, I remember distinctly giving one of those and, and getting you know, getting some, some high-candor feedback from, from you of, hey, like, like I remember you, you saying, like, this this made you did you did you did good but here's here's a list of things that that, that i need to do better upon and, you know definitely again that that high candor there's there's often especially in, in leadership a time there, there there's a people sometimes want to you know sugarcoat things and, and make people feel good but that that high candor feedback again is, is is not meant to be mean or or hurtful but that ultimately helps helps people get better yeah it's a tough one to deliver but being, I think the goal for any listener, I would hope for all of you, once you're in leadership, especially if you really have a passion for it and take a true interest in it, we talk a lot about empathy, but the other side of it is, is I think the people that are closest to you, they have to know that you're going to tell them the truth and you're going to tell them what you really think and what you really feel and not just do something, not to say things that you think other people will want to hear. I think candor, and everyone I think has heard me say this, is probably the rarest element on earth, like legitimate candor. Now, at the same time, you still have to, you, you deliver it because you care about that person. You care about their career. You care about the way they're perceived. But just to say, you know, Chris, thank you for that, but it's not good enough. And here's why. Well, and, and to kind of, and, and probably getting into a little bit more about kind of our, our relationship, I as I think about all the bosses that and, and managers I've had in the past, like you are one where I never ever had to worry about what you thought because I knew I knew if there was a problem you would tell me. Like like I, I would find myself sometimes thinking, "Gosh, is, does Steve like that, or is he okay with that?" And then I would kind of start to part of my personality. I had high standards for myself, as as I know you do as well. But I would start to kind of beat myself up, and then I would kind of snap out and be like, "Hey, like no, I trust Steve." If, if there's a problem with something, I know he's going to come tell me about it, right? So I, I never, I never had to to wonder too long, kind of what, but what your thoughts were. Yeah, there is some benefit to that, I guess, to say because it's 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 no fun when you have a boss or you have a coworker or 
I don't know, a spouse or whoever, a partner, you're like, ah, damn it. Like, I don't know what they think of that. And I don't, they won't tell me or, or are they going to tell me something and they say they like it, but they really have issues with it. That's maddening. So I wanted to eliminate that variable, you know, pretty early. So moving forward and the way we're going to work on this is, so there's a point in time where I leave and Chris, you take over. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And then ultimately you, you leave. So ultimately we build out a bunch of great stuff. I can tell you that team we had was absolutely phenomenal. Some of my best memories are me walking into this. We built this 6,000 square foot sock. I think most people know, and Chris was part of the leadership team there. We were pulled into all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, business and technology and mergers and acquisitions and legal discussions and class action lawsuits and all sorts of fun stuff and audits. And really this group matured very quickly. And I will say the the what was the director and then manager in that group that was you know, working with me, both went off and were deputy or acting CISOs at very large corporations. And I've been very proud of that, uh, along with other technicians going and leading technical practices at, at massively successful companies. Uh, so super proud of that. I think a lot of our, our the people we had that were interns and entry level are now managers and directors. So you start thinking about that pedigree. I have an immense amount of pride uh, associated with that. And I, and I know you do too. Any comments on just that, that, that snapshot of of existence of, of what we were, what, what was built. Yeah. Yeah. You, we, we talked about this a lot at, at the time of building the breach and building our, or during the breach and building out the stock of, we were all learning so much. We, we, we kind of internally would joke about it's like dog years, right? We're, we're cramming in so much knowledge in such a short amount of time. And, you know, building up something from nothing was, was a lot of fun. We definitely had, had the, the, the feel and culture of a startup within the walls of, of the megacorp. So yeah, lots, lots of fun. And as you mentioned, uh, immense amount of pride and, and kind of the, the team that, that we built and then kind of how, how, how people have moved on, as you and I talked about before, the, the mark of a great leader is the leaders that you make. And, um, you know, seeing some of the leaders that, that, that came out of that time after, after we left is, is something we're all very, very proud of, but I am as, as well. Any other advice you have just on building great teams, right? We, we just sort of gave ourselves credit for saying that we've done this, right? But any other things that, that, that you carry forward today uh, that's, that's sort of built on those experience, both of, out of crisis, but also sort of this quasi-startup culture that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of cliche and, and generic, but, but culture is just so, so important. Like we, we definitely within the walls of the sock had our own culture, our own way in which we, we said things, our own religion, if, if, if you will. And that really brought everybody together and, and kind of really helped us go out and do amazing things. And that, that, that was part of, part of, of, of kind of the, the mission statements. Like, Hey, we're, we're here to find bad things. We're here to fix bad things. We're here to get credit for it and, and provide excellent customer service. Like, like those four statements kind of bound us all together and, uh, was definitely very, very powerful, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. To create things that will distinguish us from our industry peers. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. So ultimately I leave and I distinctly remember you were a little bit for a moment like, oh shit. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, 
that was a that was a big moment uh you know when 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 you kind of announced that and, you know i i then got the call to say hey you want to will you be willing to step up and, and, and be Steve on an interim period and, and whatnot? So that was a, another big moment for me in my career is also on the personal side of things. That was right around the time of, of the birth of, of, of my first child. So there's kind of this, this portion of me that's, that's, you know, at work wise, as you said, getting called to step up into, into higher levels of leadership, but on the home life, I'm, I'm now stepping up to becoming a parent and, and a father for the first time. So a whole lot of change happening right, right there, kind of uh, within a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, that was. I can remember one thing. You're like the last couple of weeks. You're like Steve. You know, like what? I need to set up time to cover. You know, how do I handle this stuff? And do you remember what I told you? Uh, I think what was it the um, talked about the the list of stuff that that you think? No, no, it was uh, no, it wasn't that. I said, Chris. I said, do you remember every other one on one we've had, every other conversation, every other coaching moment, every every discussion we've had, probably every day for the past six or seven years? And I was like, that was your fucking preparation. Well, I, I also remember you saying, I've, I've given you the best I know how to give. I've given you all that I can. Uh, yeah. Kind of thing, so, and I did. I, there's not any, I left every ounce of myself there and I, I, you know, it, I went on and, and got to do and, and am doing some uh, amazing stuff, but there was something, there was a special moment in time. I couldn't hold on to it forever. Uh, I had to go do other things and other people needed to grow and, you know, life kind of moves forward, but that I, I gave all I could. And jokingly, I think some people have heard me say this in order to get it done, you've got to be about 15% crazy insane to get a big company even with a breach and the momentum with that to build out something uh that we did and and to have it last and have its own culture you know one of the other things i was proud of is you randomly one day i got a text i was on an airplane going somewhere and, and you said you know sometimes everyone sometimes people will still say how would steve manage this or how would steve solve this and this is years and years later and I just love that, 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 that ghost was still sort of floating around that idea. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. 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 Definitely. No, I, I, I'm in this conversation for those that are listening is a lot of memories for myself as well. So it's sort of, and Chris is reminding me of these sort of leadership lessons as well that are uh, important. So you take over and we're getting to part three, anything else you'd share before we go to that, that you remember before you decided it was time to go? Anything that you, any commentary or positive leadership memories? Again, you're now in charge of this thing that you helped build. Yeah, a, a lot of it was, I, 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 I'll tell you, I, I, I kind of struggled a little bit during, during that, that phase because I wanted to, 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 to maintain and keep up what we had built because it was, it was fantastic and, and phenomenal. But I also felt kind of the need, like, oh gosh, I, I should really try to to put my own kind of spin on this, and and and, but but at the same time, like if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? So so I, I struggled with that a little bit. I found little ways to to kind of you know kind of put put my own little spin on certain things and whatnot. But but largely, Trust tried to kind of maintain and and, and continue um, this this amazing capability that we had built together. Okay, for those that are listening, we're going to make this another break and we're going to go on to this next chapter which is honestly i think my most favorite because 
I wasn't a part of it, but there were so many interesting things that Chris went on and did. So until next time. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.